Welcome to all those tuning in to May's edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. As always, I'm here with Dr. Mike Crimmins. Welcome climate, back. Climate Dr. expert. Welcome back. Beer aficionado. I am all of those. Do things. you smoke cigars? Oh, God, no. No, <laughs> I gave that up many, many, many years ago. Uh, we haven't, We I think we missed a month, but we have a lot to talk <laughs> I about. I didn't miss a month. I missed a month. Yeah, where were you? I was on vacation. I yeah. missed a month. We have a lot. We have a lot to catch yeah, up on. It was. It was great, even I, while you weren't here. I have to admit, I you know when I think of May and talking about May, I just go, Ugh. you know, May May doesn't rank up there as one of my What's favorite. Your, you know, April showers bring May flowers. Zach. I know. May kind of reminds me of sort of like the onset of getting sick. <laughs> you know, you're running around like taking vitamin C. You don't feel and, that good. And zinc. Yeah. You're the inevitable yeah. is coming. Like the hot, the hot June. Yeah. June's like the apocalypse is on the way. I don't know where does May rank in your. Uh, you know, like. The fifth month of the year, in terms of your rank and oh, not chronological. Oh, not chronological. Oh, maybe bottom six. What's the, the favorite year? month? Oh, probably f- uh, February, March. Like, February, yeah, March. it's just sort of a that's you know everybody. You know what? Actually, there's a favorite day. It's the day the humidity retreats in October, uh-huh. and it's that glorious day where it's like 80 degrees and the humidity is crashed out. It's like this beautiful period yeah, right after summer, you broke the back of summer. Yeah, exactly. So the yeah. good thing about May is like you're not far away from the monsoon, which is the most exciting part of. I know. I, can you believe we're almost we're like four or five weeks out? It's well, just from you have to labor summer. through June. Yeah, I don't. I see again. We're going to talk today. I don't. I don't know how much labor there's going to be this year. Yeah. Yeah. Monsoons in our sights. We'll talk a little bit about forecast going forward. Let's do a recap of the winter because that's in the rear view. Because mirror. you don't, you weren't here. In I wasn't April. here. You just actually want, you just want to know what happened. I want, I actually yeah. do want to get your take on okay. what the hell happened in the winter. Okay. And then so much exciting stuff is going on with El Nino. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about. We're not going to even splice in any of the, the audio from last April either, I think, right? I'm looking I, to our engineer here. We may reuse some of our some of our audio from last year and just re, well, rerun it. Each new Enso El Nino season is uh, is is novel, so you know we won't we won't revisit uh, last year. We could. <laughs> well, let's not. <laughs> Where we stand now is for for most of Arizona, it's it's been a about average precipitation, but we had, you know, dry conditions in November. We had wet conditions in December and January, uh, dry conditions again in February, and then some, some mixed in, uh, March and April. So the balance in Arizona parts of New Mexico has, has been basically average. Now that doesn't do the, the nuances of it justice. Right. California, uh, however, has experienced the fourth, I believe, year of, uh, pretty dry conditions. We can't not talk about temperature this winter because I think that's one of the big indices that has produced some some real sort of outlier conditions. Yeah. Like average temperatures have been, uh, for the most part, record setting. Yes. Uh, 2014, we mentioned this last time, was uh, record warmth in most of the West. And the first four months of this year have followed suit for the West. And then if you look at the continental United States, there's this huge dipole, this huge juxtaposition between the dry and and warm west and the cold east. Yep. Giving rise to the, the very technical description and new index or pattern called the warm west, cold east pattern. Is that not? It literally is is being used as a description of the pattern now by by us science. Now what's, what's behind that pattern? Well, it's again, that jet stream pattern. We've, we've we've talked about this probably for, for almost two years now of 
that broad jet stream pattern um, sweeping north over the western U.S. and diving south over the eastern U.S. And so underneath and south of that jet stream is going to be the ridge of high pressure. You're going to have warm conditions persisting. And then north of that jet stream, when it, when it dives south, is going to be that cold air pouring in from the Arctic. And that's, boy, that's been the story. It, since it's such a dramatic 100th meridian break between the warmth and the cold, giving rise to that, it's giving its own pattern name. And so related at all? Boy, this has been hounded by uh, the research community, really trying to figure out what's been going on with us. And three, four, five papers, these really sort of short turnaround papers coming out in the last couple of months. And we talked about this too, I think, in earlier podcasts, of, of pointing towards conditions in the West Pacific driving a jet stream pattern, a very, very sort of stable, stationary, or persistent jet stream pattern, wave pattern across the entire Pacific that has caused that ridge in the West and that trough in the East to persist. And it, it really does seem to have, to the point where people are calling it an ENSO precursor pattern. So this idea that you get a pattern very similar to this, and you've seen this in previous El Nino events, where you kind of get this wave pattern set up prior to it actually transitioning into an El Nino. That's kind of why I think we've been on the cusp of moving into this El Nino event um, in full play, and then seeing the atmosphere sort of on the, on the, on the edge of this El Nino event as well. So last year, at about this time, there was a lot of clamor uh, because the sea surface temperatures were looking quite warm. They were looking very similar to the biggest event that we've we've experienced, 1997, 1998. Now, okay, now, you know, the, the, the yeah. El Nino didn't materialize for a bunch of reasons that we've talked about before, namely that the, the atmosphere didn't, didn't quite right. respond. Right. And now we've sort of never really lost that background state of the, yeah. of the warm sea surface temperatures. That's right. Yep. And they're warmer now than they were at this time last exactly. year. Exactly. And that, that's sort of the, the really interesting part. It's like this El Nino took 18 months to sort of get going. And that, that paper you sent me earlier this week, it was, it was kind of interesting to, to check it out, which is kind of exciting to have researchers looking at events in real time, like researching them, writing them up, and then putting them into publications. And they're only like, you know, six months old. They're looking yeah. at data that's only six months old. So what they were looking at in that particular paper was that indeed had that warm water slosh across a year ago and we were kind of having the same podcast. But there were a couple other things that weren't at play. And, and that, that paper that you sent me suggests that there were uh, these westerly wind bursts, the atmospheric events that sort of help connect the atmosphere to it across the Pacific. They just weren't lining up and they weren't in the quite the right spot. And we saw a couple more of those sort of move across over the past year. And now they're lined up in a really good spot. Yeah, and that's um, interesting to point out because in that paper, they they were looking at those wind bursts in relation to all the El Nino events. Yeah. And, the, and they the, the El Nino events that occurred also occurred concurrently Right. At, at times with those westerly windbirds. Yeah, so they had you had to have that coordination of them. So you have this sort of kind of randomness of the weather going on above it, and then this background state moving, and there's a little bit of capriciousness of, do those things line up at right the right time, which is why I think the forecasting becomes so difficult. Part of the problem last year was that there just wasn't the sea surface temperature gradient in the tropical Pacific Ocean enough to, to instigate those. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was warm throughout. Right. Like if you look at that area and what you need is sort of cooler in the West Pacific and warmer in the East Pacific to create that gradient. There wasn't that there. Yeah, exactly. So that the, bit of that chicken and egg of can you get those things to sort of line up at the right time and seeing that gradient set up, seeing that convection move over to the Central Pacific and then subsequently seeing 
some of the signs of the atmospheric coupling, like this idea of the breakdown in the Walker circulation, where you start to see the upper atmosphere sort of change directions or have wind flow in, in different directions. And at the bottom here too, didn't see that maybe for you know a couple times last spring. And there was a mismatch too between the time of the Kelvin wave coming over, the time of the westerly wind bursts. Um, some of those things were actually like a month or two out of phase from each other. And at that point, things really did. They kind of cratered the next couple of months into early summer. Another Kelvin wave, some more westerly wind bursts through the summer. But now you're at the point now where everything is in lockstep with each other, and the atmosphere is, is very strongly coupled with, with the ocean. And um, now the models er, are— It's early, though. Um, I mean, can this can this dissipate? I mean, this coupling— Could this go? Absolutely, yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah, so that that's why it's way different than last spring in the sense of it's much more favorable for conditions to continue. And that's where you see the, the models are going bonkers right now. They're, you know, you're, you're, these models, all sorts of different physical dynamical models, mathematical models, ingesting satellite data and, and surface data and ocean data and modeling forward. Some of the, the model that NOAA uses, their climate forecast system, st- started predicting the warmth of the sea surface temperatures in the central Pacific to the point where the values got so high, they had to rescale their axis that they've used on this figure for a very long time. You know, like the model started poking above Higher the than the 97, 98. Yeah. So it got a little bit like, can we believe this? So it got, the models are extremely excited, but what they're queuing in on is a lot of these features sort of fitting together yeah. at this time of year, way different than it did last time uh, this time last year, so I think that there's some things at play that are yeah, are and there's much also more favorable, and there's also the above average temperatures below the sea surface that can help yeah continue this, can help yep. propel this right and so forth. Yeah, I'm looking at these the spaghetti plot of these uh, of the um, CPC models and right. the, their CFS version two model is the highest highest one. And it, it apparently it usually is. It it usually is a little more excitable in in these situations, and so that's why it's it's nice to look at the suite of the different models from the different modeling groups, including the International Multimodel Ensemble, which has the European Center in there. And if, if you notice, you see all of those, those models hanging together and all um, you know peaking. They only go out to about November at this point, but, but they all the, hang together and point, at peak at about 2 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's right. Even the ECMWF, the European model, is, is on the upper on yeah, the side. Yeah, and it's... it's um, but again, <laughs> we had the same conversation a year ago, yeah. and the models look very similar, but there's additional lines of evidence now that point to um, a much better chance at this thing hanging together. Right. So there's some caution just based on, oh, on, la- on last yeah, year. Just absolutely. Because yeah. the, the four, there was a lot of excitement early on. Excitement. Maybe I shouldn't use that word, but you know. Well, I was excited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do look for these, uh, these extreme events because they, yeah. they are what we... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and when we talk about precip in the southwest i mean this is game time for us right and that would really help california it helped california absolutely yeah i guess the other reason to be slightly cautious is and we've talked about this before and but and there's been a recent blog that's worth reading by uh, noaclimate.gov on what it's called the the spring predictability barrier and, and it's basically just difficult to in this particular month to forecast outward so if you're in, for example, October and you want to forecast what ENSO is going to do in, in November, December, January, the, the models do a very good job at, at, at forecasting what ENSO is going to do um, the next three-month season. Uh, in April and May, 
projecting one month out, it's very bad. Yeah. But that, but that I think is because, you know, they're, you're, you're looking at aggregate statistics. Uh, and because the, the summertime in the tropical Pacific Ocean is sort of transitioning, it's, right. it's difficult for, there's no coherence in, in pattern. It's difficult to predict. Yeah. In that case. But that's not to say that any one year you, you can't have better indications than others. I, so it's a statistical s- thing. Super fair point too. And, and there's so much signal this year that you'd expect that they're latching on to something that's a lot less sort of ephemeral than maybe on sort of a borderline situation. So you, you'd, you'd expect them to perform better when things maybe get to this sort of thresholded stage where there, there's just so much momentum wise towards El Nino with the, um, where the convection is right now in the central Pacific, the extent of the westerly wind burst pushing east. The new Calvin wave kind of coming to the surface. If you if you look at there was a I was listening to a call this morning a, a webinar where they compared the April of 1997, April of 2014 last year, and April of 2015. 2014 when you start to look back, the really strong warm stuff came across in sort of January February March, and then actually sort of petered out because right. it didn't have the coupling. And April of 1997 actually looks much more similar to April of 2015 because the atmospheric coupling was there in, in uh, 97 and is here in 2015. So again, we're, we're, we're dragging that analog out again. Yeah. We did it imperfectly last year, but there's these, these things at play that seem to be a little bit different this, this spring. But I think analogs are, are useful in this particular case. You know, going back to that paper that we were referencing before, I mean, one of the things that they were trying to do is is look for more than one pattern. Yeah. You know, they they were saying, okay, we know that there's different sort of characteristics of ENSO. We know that there's different flavors. You know, let's be a little bit more detailed or descriptive about different kinds of patterns and and look for those and right. look for the relationships with precipitation. Now that, of course, slices an already small sample size, yeah. which yeah. is the problems with analogs. Yeah. But you know, it is what what people have to work with now. So when you sort of try to dissect these things, you need to have them something to compare them to. Right. And so that, that's why I feel like I think we've learned a ton. I mean, these papers that have come out in this last year, just looking at the last couple of years have shown all sorts of variants and flavors that we maybe really haven't been thinking about. And also the, the, the changes in the, the North Pacific down to the East Pacific, as far as warmth are, there's other sort of different, things going on here um, that make this a really, yet again, another interesting year coming up. So do you recall last year at this time was the sea surface temperature anomaly across the Pacific Ocean similar to it is now? It is. Yep. Okay. So we had that, we had that sort of warm horseshoe pattern from the Gulf of Alaska down the West Coast to the East Pacific. And then that warmth across the whole um, equatorial Pacific was there as well. So I guess we sh- one of the things that we should be looking at going forward is whether or not that that gradient that is present sort of goes goes away yeah, from the I, warming of the in- right. the entire basin. Yeah, and and you've already seen you you've seen it again those sort of those pieces. I think the emergence of the the cooler water in the far west Pacific is underway right now. And that's just because you, you don't have the we have this sort of reverse in, in wind flow basically. Uh, so that the gradient I think is is setting up right now. You know, also I'm looking at this sea surface temperature map and, you know, the temperatures are quite warm in the Caribbean or the Atlantic where the hurricanes form and also in um, in the region where the Pacific hurricanes form. And those are actually both related to 
ENSO events, I believe, in the Western, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, hurricanes in the Pacific Ocean, North Pacific Ocean, are related to El Nino events. That's I, right. More hurricanes occur in El Nino events in, in, in that particular area. Yep. I thought it was actually the opposite um, in the Caribbean. I don't know if you, you know offhand. It, it is. So my understanding, too, is so if, if you think about the big global scale circulation along the equator is that that shift of convection towards the central Pacific is, is going to enhance convection and rising air across the eastern Pacific. So it's the sort of idea with the walker circulation. You're going to have sinking air over the Caribbean and the Atlantic in response to having that shift in the walker circulation. So you get this sort of um, kind of very local dipole of favorable East Pacific hurricanes and unfavorable Atlantic hurricanes. And my expectation is, is that we're going to see that kind of forecast come out right. for the upcoming season. Kind of a zero-sum game. I mean, like El Nino brings, you know, wetter conditions to the Southwest, you know, which is important for uh, relieving some of the drought stress that we've seen, hopefully. You know, of course, the Caribbean's in a, in a, in a drought now, yeah. too. So it brings drier conditions yeah, there. So. Exactly. You know, and, and it's with all of these, these big sort of shifts is that when you shift away from your, again, your climatology, which is exactly what these things do and how we, you know, how we try to use them as forecasts, there's going to be winners and losers. And the winners can sometimes be like too much of a good thing. And that's what those, these past El Nino events, you know, sometimes bring is these flooding hazard issues that could happen in the, in the fall and next winter. So ENSO is going to increasingly get interesting to talk about. Yeah, um, I think so. And again, boy, wouldn't it be something if this thing fell apart again? I don't know. It looks, it looks better. It looks better here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be tempered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I clearly, I'm not, I should have learned. What is it? Uh, once, once bitten, twice shy. I'm yeah. trying to think of all the, the uh, aphorisms that, that go with that. Shame yeah, but, on you, fool me once, <laughs> something like that. You know, paying attention to how this thing evolves is important as well, even though if, you know, we, we, we were reluctant to talk about impacts quite yet. So we just mentioned, too, that the monsoon season, June 15th, start date, right? So what is a, what is a full-fledged, atmospherically coupled El Nino event say about the monsoon? I'm looking your way. Oh. <laughs> you I'm know, not sure either. I mean, because I think what? it's a bit noisy. I think it's a bit of a mixed signal too. Yeah. And, and you see some research suggesting early onset with La Nina events and late onset with El Nino. A, a lot of the research that's it's come out of Chris Castro's group. It is. It's a little bit earlier. Yeah, okay. With with La Nina's and a little bit later with with Enso. And then, like you said, it kind of kind of for El Nino. It's away. later for El Nino. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But again, it, it's it's not real. Strong. It's not real strong. Um, but then again, has there hasn't been many really strong full-fledged El Ninos yeah, at the time that the monsoon... That's right. And, and what a lot of that work suggests, too, is that the, the state of the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific decadal variability is, a, is at play at that, too. And for all intents and purposes, that looks way different last year and this year. That horseshoe pattern in the, of warm water in the Pacific Ocean suggests that we're, we're some, someplace different with respect to the sort of broader atmospheric patterns. So just the, the climate forecasting system, dynamical models, they paint wet conditions for every month out through next spring for the Southwest. I mean, right. they just none of them go even near average. They're all above average from here on out. Can you believe them? Mm. I, don't, I don't know, but that's something you don't see that often, I think. But I think that the conversation about the monsoon is an, it's, a, it's a good segue because the monsoon historically tamps down the fire season, which right. is where we're heading into right now. Yeah. 
you know, I'd mentioned that sort of the evolution of the winter, we had sort of a mixed bag in terms of precipitation, some months dry, some months uh, wet. But we had some actually uncharacteristically wet conditions recently yeah. that that's yeah. helped that's helped tamp down a fire risk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it, what a weird winter with, you know, October rains. I think we had no precipitation in November to speak of, then snow in the valleys in December, and then very warm conditions and then lack of snow for all intents and purposes for the rest of the spring. Some kind of dry conditions in mid mid winter, early spring that, you know, gave us a little bit of like, oh, you know, maybe fire season is gonna really ramp up. Then it gets humid and starts raining in late April and it's it's rained much of Arizona and, and New Mexico had has had epic rainfall um in just in the last week in May. And so your fire season, we are, we're running into right now, we're, we're supposed to be sort of heading towards peak activities climatologically. That's kind of put on hold because of sort of drying out, increasingly dry conditions in May, increasing temperatures, decreasing relative humidity. And the wind. Yeah, and the wind picking up too. And right now we've got very high humidities, very wet fuels, um, heavy, heavy fuels, and cool temperatures. So that can turn around on a dime and it can turn around in a dime with, you know, a week of above average, very low relative humidity, and that could dry out grasses. And then you can have all of this standing fuel that grew from last monsoon season, all the weeds and everything like that catch, catch on fire, which I think is the main concern from the fire manager's standpoint. But as far as like big knockdown, blow out a national forest. I, I don't think that that risk yeah, that, is here this year. That fire season of a few years ago, three years ago, I believe. 2011. Yeah, 2011. The big one, right? Yeah, the big one. Yeah. Um, it, it looks be, like we're not going to have that. Yeah, but you, I mean, that was so different in the sense of winter drought and then very, very windy, very, very low relative humidity. No precip. In, no precip. In uh, yeah, late spring. Exactly. So by the time May and June, June rolled around, I mean, it, the fire danger was extreme and it had stacked up. And we we just don't you don't see that pretty much anywhere across Arizona and New Mexico except the low deserts with the fine fuels. Yeah, and California has pretty high fire risk. The rest of the West is yeah. in trouble. Yeah, California and the Pacific Northwest are going to have pretty rough. And part of that is because the snowpack hasn't stayed on the landscape as long. I mean, it's you, if, you, yeah. if you look at the snowpack today relative to the historical average, the map is red. It's like yeah. below fifty percent, which is important because the less snowpack you have on the landscape, the longer that you have to dry out that those yeah. those fuels. Yep. Yeah, and you can think about where what we have at play down here in, in Arizona, New Mexico is is that we get this slug of relative humidity that comes in in, you know, hopefully early July. Well the rest of the West doesn't see that, right? I mean, July and August for California is the peak and the heart of the driest and hottest um, part of the season. So their fire season can can linger all the way into next November when it starts raining. And, you know, they get this summer um, fire season, and then they have the Santa Ana wind season that they can deal. They'll have to deal with in September and October as well. So, what what was the cause of the storm in early this month and late uh, April? Um, well, so we've was, had high humidity, right, for yeah, for a while. Yeah, I mean, but that's related to the to the incursion of that sort of moist air. Yeah, and it, it, if you look at the again, it, it's this East Pacific is you know several degrees above average. Um, has been giving off moisture to the atmosphere and mm. it's always kind of been on our doorstep. And so anything that kind of wanders by and is, has the right fetch drags it up. It's just been sort of hanging out. The jet stream is what we call in a split flow pattern right now. 
meaning that there's a the northern branch of the jet stream and then there's this kind of weaker subtropical branch and we've been more of our storms have been interacting and kind of coming out of this southern branch and when they're southern branch storms they don't have access to cold air mm. but they have access to moisture so that's been the character of these they've not been very cold they've had the humidity with them they haven't been terribly strong they've been kind of wandering around but we've seen a trains of them through the spring and again it's probably a little bit earlier to say this, but it's that's that's very El Nino-ish in that kind of pattern. Oh, El Nino. Oh, I know. I know. I, we knew we'd get around to it at some point, right? <laughs> it's also worth uh, pausing a minute on, since we've talked about snowpack, the stream flow projections. Ugh, yeah. You know, we've gotten near average rain, but a lot of that rain didn't fall. Precipitation, not rain. A lot of that precipitation didn't fall as snow. Right. So most of the... Um, the monitoring stations at higher elevations recorded below average accumulation of snow, uh, which has influenced uh, the timing of the spring stream flows. Uh, and in a lot of some of the headwaters, actually, it's been below average. And so if you look at the stream flow forecast for like the Rio Grande, it's like below 50%, which is bad news for, for, for that area. Yeah. And also on the, on the Colorado River, it's, it's below 50% too. So we're like, I'm betting, if I was a betting man, I would bet that, you know, the Colorado River reservoirs are going to drop below the 1075 elevation trigger that would cause some conservation measures to be put in place relatively soon. Yeah, I don't think you're alone on that, on that bet either. I guess the upshot is in terms of impacts, Boy, it sure would be good if, if we do get that El Nino going forward. Well, that's the tricky part with these El Ninos is that um, if you look back on the statistics, they're you know really good cranking El Ninos. They tend to do much better for Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, and the, not Colorado, not, not yeah. the Upper Basin, right? The yeah, upper, so, so Upper Basin is in that kind of gray zone of El Nino La Nina. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot. Well, of, I don't know. What do we flip uh, a coin then? Yeah, <laughs> and, well, I, I think that that's that that kind of spells the. You, you kind of know where this is heading. You know, I think that the Colorado Basin recovering next winter is probably not mm. not highly probable. And again, you know, this has been a downward trace that we've been watching for a while. So I think that uh, I think we're heading towards shortage um, pretty quick. Mike, anything else? We, we sort of covered a, a a wide range here. No, you only what you only have twenty two, twenty three days left in your least favorite month here. Actually, my this is my second least favorite. So, what's your what's your first? June, June. Oh, that's okay. June's oh, like gosh. the apocalypse. You're gonna be mis- you're gonna be miserable to be around for what another uh, well, six eight weeks. June is the apocalypse. You it's think just, so? It's just hot. Yeah, but I, I, it's that kind. It's it's a dry heat, man. Yeah, it's a dry heat. Yeah, and the monsoon starts on June fifteenth. So we only have. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the monsoon starts officially on June fifteenth, but you know, probably not until July. I'm excited. I you know it's it's been such an interesting transition with these kind of really weird late season storms only a matter of weeks till we should start looking south i'm really hoping these forecast models are seeing something that that we're not and that this pattern can turn around we can get that monsoon ridge in here and we can actually have this thing start on time my worry is that we get a we get a we get a bad late start the reason I call it the apocalypse is because I started really paying attention to climate during 2011 when it when all it was those horrible yeah yeah that was a bad year <laughs> yeah you know we'll come back uh, be a month closer to the monsoon, and we can talk more about that. We'll have some more insight. Maybe you know, just talk a little bit about like the historical climatology of the monsoon. And the monsoon's this interesting animal in that it's got a, a number of different ways that you could you could characterize it. And 
all of them sort of belie its com- complexity. It's, yeah. ha- it's a hard thing to talk about, but That's it's right. it's worth sort of characterizing in its in its in its nuance. And uh, and yeah, so uh, thanks to everybody for for tuning in, and uh, hopefully you'll tune again in in, in a month. Oh, I can't wait to talk about El Nino. You know, I never envisioned this being part of my, my career. <laughs> I know. I do a podcast. You know, like the way I talk normally? <laughs> we record it, and then other people listen to it. <laughs> you look perplexed. <laughs>